I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So, yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, the dignity of man. Among the attributes the orange one is known for is effectively dangling new shiny objects to distract our attention from other, more important matters. Our guest today suggests that perhaps the president himself may be a shiny new object diverting our focus from real underlying serious issues which we are thereby not facing up to. Despite the the media frenzy, the challenges and opportunities as we hit the second half of Trump's first and many hope last term really are not affected by what our guest, professor and author Andrew Basevich, sees as a simply vacant presidency. Despite the glut of screaming headlines, uh, less than we imagine is actually going on. In his all-too-familiar bluster, for example, Trump promised a whole new foreign policy of America first. Many wondered if our foreign entanglements might start to become untangled. But as our guest observes, it was promised that once Trump took charge, things were going to be different, as he and he alone would make America great again. In the face of this egotistical fantasy, our guest writes that, quote, almost nothing of substance has changed, nor will it, and that the United States remains on a trajectory that does not differ appreciably from what it was prior to Trump's occupation of the White House. No question the Donald stands out dramatically from other presidents, and Basevich presents it in this fashion. Trump himself is no more than a pimple on the face of this nation's history. It's time to step back from the mirror and examine the face in full. Pretty, it's not, end of quote. But, he writes, eventually a pimple dries up and disappears, often without leaving a trace, which is not to suggest that we should just let it alone. We need to look clear-eyed at what that face has actually been and will be after Trump. So on this show, we're going to examine the reality behind what often appears to be hyperventilation and see what is real change and what is not, for better or worse. Because quite frankly, we could use a lot of change. Andrew Basevich, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Happy to be with you. Andrew Basevich is Professor Emeritus of History and International Relations at Boston University. His article is on Tom Dispatch and the Nation— and it's titled, After Trump, The Donald in the Rearview Mirror. His new book, Twilight of the American Century, will be published this fall. Well, again, thanks for being with us. So much is written about the Trump presidency. 
What is the intent of your article in Tom Dispatch and the Nation? What does it perhaps uniquely address that needed to be addressed? Well, I think that the uh, hysteria that uh, Trump has generated, uh, while on the one hand, understandable, is uh, counterproductive. Uh, And to the extent that all we do is talk about Trump's latest uh, shenanigans, we are giving far less attention to matters that are actually far more important than the president himself. Uh, and that's that's really the substance of the article, I think. Yes. It's a good point, and, and we, we don't get that. We, we fall for the shiny object. It's true. They know what they're doing. Now, Regular listeners know that on Keeping Democracy Alive, we think it is highly valuable to look at today's challenges in the context of history. You argue that, quote, except in a ceremonial sense, the office of the presidency presently lies vacant. Call it an abdication in place. And in historical comparison, you dredge up the curious saga of British King Edward VIII saying it's unlikely he meaning Trump, ever had a more serious interest in governing than Edward had. That's very interesting. What do you mean by that? Please explain. Well, I mean, Edward is the guy who abandoned his throne for the quote-unquote woman I love, that is to say, uh, Wallace uh, Simpson. Uh, And uh, um, I'm suggesting that to some degree the situation we have now is comparable in that, uh, for all practical purposes, Trump himself has really ceased to govern in a serious sense. And yet there he is in the White House. And I say it's almost as if after uh, Edward VIII abdicated, he stayed on in Buckingham Palace, uh, you know, making, making noises and calling attention to himself while the life of Great Britain continued on. I mean, I think one of the uh, significant revelations, both in this new Bob Woodward book, yes, and in the famous anonymous op-ed that appeared in the New York Times, is further confirmation that whatever is going on uh, in, the, in the apparatus of government uh, doesn't necessarily, and indeed probably doesn't, reflect the actual intentions of Trump himself. He busies himself yeah. unleashing this daily storm of of tweets and telling us that he's the greatest president that, that ever served, but the decisions that matter are being made by other people or not being made at all. So in that sense, like Edward VIII, I think Trump has abdicated. Unlike Edward VIII, having abdicated, Trump still sits there in our equivalent of Buckingham Palace. <laughs> That's such a good analogy. I never would have thought of that. That's why you're on here. Every quadrennial presidential election, it seems to me people either want change or more of the same. It's one or the other. Without a doubt, 2016 was a year voters demanded change. Many of the same voters were deciding between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. As you put it, quote, the 60 plus million Americans who voted for Trump did so with at least the expectation that he was going to shake things up. And bigly, end of quote, the impression across the mainstream media is that he has indeed shaken up pretty much everything. Has he? Well, I don't think so. 
I mean, in your lead-in, you talked about a little bit about foreign policy, and I think that's a, a great illustration. You'll recall that uh, when Trump was elected, <clears throat> there was great concern that his uh, revival of the phrase America first <clears throat> was going to meant, meant that the United States was going to uh, embrace full-fledged isolationism, turn its back on the world. And that simply hasn't happened. Uh, by no means am I trying to suggest that I, I think the foreign policy of the Trump administration deserves our, uh, you know, uh, our endorsement. But the fact of the matter is we still got troops in 150 countries around the world. Uh, we've got a new uh, military budget uh, that uh, is you know, larger than uh, the next 10 countries put together. Uh, we continue to, to, uh, to uh, be directly involved in combat operations in Afghanistan and Iraq in Syria in Yemen. Just read today that there's been another airstrike in Somalia. Uh, Trump had promised he was going to end unnecessary wars. He was going to bring the troops home. That hasn't happened, and it won't happen. Certainly not under Trump. And again, thinking about history, it seems like the Trump doc—I mean, the Truman Doctrine—I should say—of uh, 1947. We haven't really moved very far from there. The, you, we've we've been what you call the keeper of order and defender of democracy throughout the world. And you know, as you say, Trump said he'd change that, and people were concerned about his apparent taste for isolationism. And I wonder, have we even started to, as somebody I liked, George McGovern, called for come home, America? It's, it seems like Trump has no clue as to foreign policy, and other people are calling the shots. Is there? But, but he, I mean, he has no clue. But if we take his rhetoric on the campaign trail yes. at face value, he was going to implement George McGovern's come home, America uh, idea. And my point is that hasn't happened. In right. other words, if we, if rather than obsess about what Trump says on a daily basis, I think it's far more important for us to right. uh, assess the trajectory of U.S. foreign policy. Let's say since that Trump doctrine, excuse me, Truman doctrine right. that you just cited, and understand where that trajectory has brought us. And it has brought, under the guise of so-called global leadership, right. it has brought us to a condition in which our approach to the world is thoroughly militarized, in which we are involved in unending wars, uh, for which there is minimal uh, strategic purpose. And it's that, it seems to me, that ought to be the focus of critical attention. And, and, and Trump had nothing to do with that. Uh, he indeed, as a candidate, he decried that posture. But under Trump, that posture continues, uh, and that, it seems to me, is what people ought to get their knickers in and not about. <laughs> well, certainly the, there's a lot of money to be made. The new budget is, as you mentioned, just unbelievable, 717 I believe it is, billion dollars. And I, I wonder, did Trump have a sense of what the public wanted when he talked about sort of, you know, coming home America, getting out of these foreign entanglements. I w and, and certainly uh, uh, the other shaker-upper, Bernie Sanders, would have uh, 
perhaps done something about that. But I wonder if that sentiment is something that is actually wide, despite the actual policy, and and if there's still, you know, sort of a bipartisan interest in in you know closing out some of our bases and and uh, investing more at home and less uh, overseas in these military adventures. Well, I think the bipartisan interest, if by if here we mean what the two parties in Washington believe, right. the bipartisan view is that we should maintain mm-hmm. our approach to global leadership with all the emphasis on on maintaining and using military power uh, I think it's uh, it's people it's people out there in the hinterlands uh, who may be more skeptical about uh-huh. what that approach has yielded particularly since 9/11 when war has become such a such a, a normal part of our of our national life yeah. but there's no there's no real interest in Washington uh, for a major reevaluation or re- reorientation of foreign policy, and that's why uh, all the mm. breast beating that occurred after his election, the predictions that he uh, was going to take us down the path to isolationism, uh, were inappropriate uh, because uh, <laughs> he wasn't going to do that and and didn't do that. Right. But I I wonder if the sentiment is still there among the people. I mean, people wanted change, and what we got was more of the same, very clearly in terms of foreign policy. So that Well, I think it's not just in foreign policy. I mean, the oh, other yeah. thing I think the people wanted, at least that, that Trump seems to, seemed to sense that, that people uh-huh. wanted, uh, was a, a more equitable economy, hmm. uh, one, one that was going to pay more attention to the needs of working people and less attention to the plutocrats. Yeah. I mean, here I'm echoing Bernie Sanders' view, yeah. but I think that was also part of, of, of Trump's pitch yes. uh, as, he was, as he was running. And there is no evidence that I know of that under Trump there's been any progress in that regard. The, the, the economy is more or less rigged uh, to work to the benefit of the well-to-do again, Yep. Uh, Trump didn't do anything of what he said he was going to do. And again, I think it is the larger problem of inequality, which predates Trump. Yeah. He had nothing to do with creating this inequality. Yeah. It's the larger problem of inequality, not Trump's daily shenanigans, right. that really deserve our attention. I would agree. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and I'm very pleased to have with us Professor Andrew Basevich. Uh, Professor Emeritus of History and International Relations at Boston University. His latest article is After Trump, the Donald in the Rearview Mirror. His new book, Twilight of the American Century, will be published this fall. I do look forward to uh, reading it. And with all the Sturm und Drang, could it be se- could it be that since our national freakout on November 9th, 2016, when we woke up to the election, uh, we have been needlessly wallowing in unreality. Could it be said that we've been doing that, what you so colorfully call living in a perpetual state of high dojin, denouncing his latest inanity and predicting the onset of fascism, is to enjoy the equivalent of a protracted protracted psychic orgasm? Uh, You must explain that one, please. Well, I think that's what we see in so much of the media. You know, if you read the New York Times, if you read the Washington Post, watch CNN, watch MSNBC, uh, I mean, the, the, the tone is, 
close to hysterical. Uh, and the connotation, I think, or the suggestion of the conversations, the analysis, is that uh, you know the fascism is right around the corner, and that the entire country is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, I say that as someone who has no regard for President Trump. I think his, his, he is totally unqualified for the office he holds. But I think that the problems we face predate Trump. And, and tend not to be uh, adequately examined by those same mainstream media outlets. Interesting. The problems and opportunities predate Trump, and we're getting uh, distracted from actually solving them. And you talk about in your article as, as a measuring tool, basically. You use the year the little orange one landed on this planet, 1946. I don't know if he was orange when he was born. You say that as the post-World War II era was beginning, three large facts so immense that they were simply take, were taken for granted defined America. I wonder if you could please take a few minutes and tell us about these three large facts, the way we were when Trump was born. Well, the first one is that the United States made everything and we made more of it than anyone else. Uh, you know, made in the USA wasn't a slogan. It was a, it was a fact of life in many respects, the dominant fact of life. Uh, so we were not dependent upon others economically. The second fact, I think, is that as you know, the, this, the engine of industrial capitalism was generating great wealth, it was also distributing that wealth, wealth relatively, relatively, uh, equitably. Uh, so it was certainly the case that after World War II, the rich were getting richer. Sure. It's also the case that after World War II, the people in the middle uh, were doing relatively better. I mean, when we remember, we can remember a lot of things about the 1950s that, uh, uh, that deserve our criticism. Oh, sure. But one of the things about the 1950s is it was truly the golden era for the American middle class. Right. Uh, and, and that... That and, and Americans uh, appreciated that, understood that, and I think the third thing was that in the immediate wake of World War II, the American people weren't gung ho about war. Right. Indeed, that having participated in the Great Global War for, from 1941 to 1945, the general inclination was to avoid war. Yes. Americans understood that war was an evil, evil thing, uh, and of course today we've lost all sense of that. And we accept war as a, as a normal condition, uh, in large part perhaps because the great majority of us actually don't have any involvement in the wars that are undertaken in our name. So I think those are the three, the three big things. An economy where we made stuff, an economy where the benefits were distributed relatively equitably, and, a, and an approach to foreign policy that was not isolationist, but was, but was sort of keyed to the priority of trying to avoid a recurrence of the kind of war that we had experienced in the early 1940s. And that, of course, was a Republican presidency, Dwight Eisenhower, who would be considered uh, <laughs> very, probably left of most Democrats these days. He wanted to continue with the FDR uh, investing in America and preserving a middle class. It's amazing to me, looking at the charts of, of wealth back then as compared to now, there was, a, as you say, a large 
wide middle class that was pretty solid, and, and that's pretty gone now, pretty much gone. And my point is not that we should somehow return to the Eisenhower era. I don't think that that's possible, no. and in many respects that's not desirable. I mean, that, that also was an era of yeah. racism, sexism, homophobia, and so on. But my real point is that in, in order to fully understand the predicament we face today, it's necessary to recognize those aspects of the immediate post-World War II era that defined who we were at the time, and that in many respects have been lost. And it's their loss, the, the loss of our economic primacy, the loss of economic equality, uh, the, 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 uh, the emergence of war as an everyday thing, those facts, I think, that, that did lay the basis for Trump to become president. And it's those things that deserve our attention much more than anything that Trump himself says or even does. Interesting. So if I have you right, I'm not sure that I do, could it be that what a lot of the people who voted for Trump and others as well uh, perhaps wanted by voting for Trump, that obviously the phrase making America first or making America great again, uh, you know, is a bit of nostalgia that perhaps people really intended and hoped, that's always a dangerous thing, hope to go back to that sense of stability where America was fairly secure economically, we had a large middle class, that that really was the intention. I mean, Trump obviously isn't doing anything like that. But perhaps that was the uh, the sentiment behind a lot of the people who voted for Trump. Go back to the way things used to be. <laughs> Which, well, go ahead. I mean, we can put it that way, and and I I think there probably was an element of that. But I think I think actually a better way to put it was that they were they were voting to to reject to repudiate uh, the facts that had taken the place of those three. I mean, the, the, the new fact that replaced the one with economic self-sufficiency uh, was globalization, uh, which certainly was creating great fortunes for some, but it was also in, in hurting a lot of people, uh, leaving people behind. Uh, you know, with, in, instead of a very rich country that distributed the benefits of its wealth re relatively equitably. We have, we have a country today of haves and have-nots. Right. Instead of a country that had a wariness about war, we have a country that's permanently at war. So I think in many respects, the explanation for why this utterly unqualified individual became president is because people were trying to, re were, were, were rejecting, were repudiating what had become the policy consensus uh, by the time the election of 2016 rolled around. Interesting, interesting, interesting. It doesn't uh, it certainly hasn't exactly uh, uh, worked that way. And uh, you know, as, as we mentioned, the 50s, you know, golden era, etc. People talk about the golden era of TV. I actually think it's a heck of a lot more golden now with all the Netflix and stuff. But one of the changes that really does seem significant. I'd be curious as to your view on this under Trump is the emergence of blatant racism. Since the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, one might have had the impression 
that racism was actually fading. I was so naive to think that by having a black president, it might make a dent on racism. Uh, seems to have been the opposite. Now it's like the sewer covers have come off and the stench of racism is spreading. People are openly white supremacist, openly racist. So it seems like a change is perhaps a reversion to the way it was in the 50s. Your thoughts on that, please? Well, I mean, I think what you say is true, but I think it's important not to press that point too far. Uh, I mean, I would certainly agree. Well, first of all, point number one is that uh, racism was not eradicated just because we had a civil rights movement, just because we had a black president. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but it is true, racism had gone underground. Yeah. I mean, it was it was uh, to, to, to openly uh, express racist views was to be read out of polite society. And that, that, that prohibition uh, has disappeared <laughs> with Trump. And so we do have people who proudly proclaim themselves racist, nationalist, white supremacist, uh, and so on. But I guess my cautionary point would be that however uh, reprehensible uh, that behavior is, and it needs to be uh, condemned and opposed uh, at every opportunity, I I don't think I'd get carried away in thinking that that those people are about to take over the country. No. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, the... The, the counter demonstrations, uh, whenever there has been some kind of a, of a nationalist white supremacist uh, uh, protest, the counter demonstrations have been uh, substantially larger. I would take some assurance yeah. from knowing that. Again, my point is not to dismiss the reemergence of overt racism, but I think it's important not to mm-hmm. overstate. Uh, the threat that those uh, people pose. Yeah, it sure is ugly, but you're right. There's a heck of a lot more of us than them. I mean, that's that's a simple fact. And you want readers to note that, quote, Donald Trump played no role in creating this America or consigning the America of 1946 to oblivion. What do you mean by that? I mean that, uh, you know, he, he burst onto the political scene when he rode down that escalator, which was what, 2015? Yes. Uh, and prior to that time, he had played no significant role in our civic life. Uh, he played no significant role in creating the, the facts that defined who we had come to be by the time that the election of 2016 rolled around. Doesn't mean he's an innocent party. He's a <laughs> sinner like the rest of us, and some of his sins are pretty dramatic. Uh, but but Trump did not create the conditions that produced the election of Donald Trump to become president. And it's those conditions, it seems to me, that deserve our attention more than Trump himself. That's a very important point, I think. It's, you know, he, he's not the problem. Uh, he is uh, an example. The, the problem existed much. It's he's, much he's the, he is a symptom of this symptom, problem. Yeah. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. I have the pleasure of talking to Professor Andrew Basevich uh, about his, his article, After Trump, the Donald in the Rearview Mirror. We're looking at what's, what's real behind the shiny objects that he dangles all the time, how we've changed and, and how we haven't. And we talked a bit about how certainly after uh, uh, the, fir- the Second World War, 
<laughs> and we saw what happened when uh, we dropped a couple of nuclear weapons on Japan. We've been very determined to avoid a nuclear war. Nuclear war terrified us. That whole uh, communist uh, hysteria of the 50s was, I think, largely about uh, nuclear war, being afraid of uh, Sputnik, for example, that the Russians launched. And, and we were really afraid of nuclear war. That's a long time ago. And <laughs> Trump has the appearance of not being at all bothered by the prospect of, oh, tossing around a few little nuclear bombs. And, and luckily, there seem to be uh, those in the White House that check those impulses. What do you think the American people's current attitude toward war and nuclear weapons is? It's, see, my sense is that people are not as freaked out by nuclear weapons as they used to be. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think that uh, the threat of nuclear war is, uh, is as much of our politics uh, as it was back at the height of the Cold War. But I think, you know, the issue of uh, Trump's inflammatory rhetoric, particularly on, on, on matters that relate to the use of nuclear weapons, is is another example of, of, of my argument that he really doesn't count for all that much. No. Uh, the rhetoric is inflammatory. Uh, but members of the permanent national security establishment uh-huh. uh, are very wary of once more using nuclear weapons, and therefore they are, I believe, uh, exerting themselves to try to ensure that Mm -hmm. the president's impulsive rhetoric does not shape U.S. national security policy in any uh, meaningful way. So periodically Trump shoots off his mouth like this or that, but the effect on our national security posture has not been significant. Right. Now, I think there's many aspects of our national security policy that deserve to be critically examined and ought to be changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you look at how much change Trump has brought, it's really not that great. Yeah, in terms of foreign policy, that, that certainly is interesting. I mean, he had that famous threat to... Uh, his, his good friend now, Kim Jong-un, about uh, fire and fury such as the world had never seen. But uh, it oddly, it was odd to me how people didn't freak out so much about that language. I mean, I certainly did. I wasn't, uh, you know, the prospect of having nuclear bombs suddenly appear was suddenly all too real, more so than it had been since 1962. Well, I guess I remember it differently than you do. I thought people did freak out, and appropriately so. Oh, good. With the passage of time, I think what we've learned is that uh, the president is inclined to say these things for inexplicable reasons. Just bluster. Uh, But what the president says doesn't necessarily reflect actual existing U.S. (laughs) policy. Uh, Again, I think that, that what we're getting from that anonymous New York Times op-ed in the Woodward book uh, tends to uh, affirm that view, that that there there is this thing called U.S. policy, Mm, mm -hmm. and there's this other thing called what the president says, and those are not the same thing. (laughs) That's a good thing. 
there should be some degree of reassurance for that. But the problem is the, the well, po- but but it's only it's only reassurance if if the thing called U.S. policy right. is sound. Exactly. And my argument would be that there's a lot about U.S. policy to include policy prior to Trump becoming president uh, that we have taken for granted and ought to change. And to the extent that everybody's jumping up and down, getting excited about uh, what Trump said, then these the the, the policy needs yeah. substantive requirements uh, tend to be overlooked. And I can see that in, you know, what immediately come to mind is, is a couple of things. I mean, the other candidate for the presidency in 2016, Hillary Clinton, was very hawkish militarily. I was tremendously bothered by that. I thought that was a very, very bad uh, continuation of, you know, this aggressive, uh, militaristic, uh, kind of imperialistic foreign policy that we've had since 1947. That existed, as you say, before Trump. And it's still, that hasn't changed at all, I don't think. I mean, there's bases all over the place. I don't know where the public is on, on such issues. The other issue is, of course, what you mentioned, the widespread economic security back when Trump was born. How, you know, the, the answer to, to foreign policy, I think, is perhaps a little bit easier that, uh, you know, we, we just cut it out, you know, cut back some bases, which a lot of, I think, genuine conservatives are for, that we spread ourselves out so much. But what about restoring the middle class. People really want uh, to to have another middle class like we had in the late 40s and 50s. How did, what was different about our widespread economic security back then? How did that basis into which both Trump and I were born come to be back then? Can Can that be addressed now? I mean, Trump obviously isn't doing anything about that. He's making it worse. He's exacerbating it. How, how can we regain well, those the conditions? The conditions that existed after World War II resulted from World War II. I mean, every, the entire developed world at the time uh, had been severely damaged in a physical sense yeah. as a consequence of, of, of the war itself. I mean, the, Germany, Japan, the Soviet Union, uh, Western Europe, uh, the United Kingdom, Everything had been bombed. Everything had been shredded, uh, and and therefore, from an economic point of view, much of the world was on its knees. With, mm-hmm. of course, the great exception of the United States of America, True. Uh, our gross national product grew substantially during the course of World War II as we put uh, the Great Depression behind us. So, our our our. One of the results of World War II was, was undisputed American economic superiority. Yes. And I think it was inevitable, as the rest of the world recovered, that that superiority was going to uh-huh. uh, diminish. Uh-huh. Uh, and indeed, it, it has. Uh, I don't believe that, that we, the people, uh, have taken into account the full implications of that shift in uh, economic power, we continue to believe that we should be able to buy everything we want and not have to worry about how it all gets paid for. <laughs> so we've got a country uh, that is going ever and ever, ever more deeply in debt. Oh, by the way, Trump had promised to balance the budget, and we'll probably have something like a trillion-dollar deficit 
at the end of the current fiscal year. And even as individuals in our, ho our households, we take it for granted that we should be able to live on credit. I say we, obviously that's not everybody, uh, but the whole notion of balancing the books of pay-as-you-go, uh, ideas that back at the time Trump was born, born were, were, were commonplace, sure. those ideas no longer exist, or at least Americans have come to the conclusion that maybe they should apply to other nations, but they shouldn't apply to ourselves. Hmm. Well, I wonder how... I mean, it was really nice having a solid middle class where people could depend on, you know, a job for life, like in the uh, car manufacturing. That Those days are simply gone. Is there? I mean, will we ever regain? And people, I think, uh, are nostalgic for when we were the biggest thing on the block, you know, sort of pounding our chest King Kong style after World War II because we weren't destroyed. The, the war was not on our soil. I wonder if there's any, is that just something that is a nice memory that, that can't come back? Or do you think, is it possible uh, to, to have us be, you know, not the dominant power of the world, except militarily, which we clearly are, but I think economically, we are not <laughs> the dominant eco economic power in the world. Can we regain some sense of widespread economic security for the population, is it even possible? And are there perhaps uncomfortable ways that we need to look at the situation as existed before Trump was elected? Well, I'm not an economist, so I'm not sure oh, I darn. can give you a, uh, a a very good answer on this. Right. Uh, I think, from a geopolitical perspective, uh, no, we're not going to be the dominant power that we were no. in 1946 when Trump was born, and and the reasons, I think, are obvious, and that is that uh, the rest of that world that was flat on its back has now recovered, and indeed, uh, in the last 30 years, since the end of the Cold War, uh, there has been a striking redistribution of global power, principally benefiting the East. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the rise of China mm -hmm. is the great geopolitical fact of our time. Yep. I suppose it's possible that some great domestic crisis in China could cause China to mm. collapse internally. Mm. I don't think I'd bet on that. No. Uh, I think what I would bet on is that we're entering into an age in which there are going to be, there will not be one single superpower. Right. There will be several major powers uh, we're going to be one of them. We might even be the most important, uh, but we're not going to be the cock of the walk. <laughs> and I think the great geopolitical question of our of this century really is whether or not the several important powers are going to be able to find a way to define the rules of the game that will avoid the repetition of the great wars of the of the twentieth century. Mm. So how are we going to learn to get along with? Not not like, simply get along with uh, mutual coexistence. Get along with with China and with Russia and with Western Europe and with India and with Turkey and with Japan and with uh, Korea that may end up being United Korea uh, and so on. Yes. Uh, none of these powers are going to. We're not going to be able to ignore 
any of their interests, uh, all are going to have to be somehow taken into account. Uh, and that's a, that's a diplomatic challenge of enormous difficulty, one in which it seems to me there is no military solution right. per se. Definitely not. So that's a long-winded way of saying that well, it seems to me that one of the things that ought to happen is for us to finally come to realize the limits of American military power uh, and to give up our efforts to rely on military power to maintain American primacy, come to terms with this new multipolar order and try to find a way to ensure that that multipolar order doesn't blow up (laughs) the way the last century's multipolar order blew up in 1914 and again in 1939. Wow. And there's so many opportunities. We've had to learn that lesson, but have so far seems like most of us refuse to learn. And one of the attractive features about the phrase make America great again was uh, sort of the opposite of what Bernie Sanders was talking about. Like, hey, look at Scandinavia. They work differently. People are pretty happy there. There's socialized medicine. But the people, I think, who voted for Trump were, you know, sort of, again, nostalgic for the 50s when we were the big guy. How dare you say we can learn from other countries? Well, I I mean, there have been some nostalgia, but I think that the greater force leading to his election was anger and alienation. Yes. It wasn't so much that the average Trump voter said, gosh, I wish we were in the 1950s. I think the average Trump voter looked at the, the, the circumstances that existed in uh, 2016 and said, I reject this. Yeah. I, I'm not going to have this. And so I'm going to vote for this guy who says that he's going to change everything. I mean, he, Trump had no idea how he was going to change everything. He had a bunch of slogans and sound bites. Uh, but for 60 million of our fellow citizens, uh, those sound bites were more persuasive than Hillary Clinton's uh, well-rehearsed uh, uh, patter that basically uh, was a promise to continue the status quo. Yep, and it was a year of change. People either, as I still believe, people either want change or more of the same. And 2016 was clearly, in my opinion, people wanted change. Bernie Sanders promised change. Uh, she just, I don't know how she could miss that message. The Democrats had no message. And I think for 2018 and 2020, we have to listen, you know, know who our audience is. I don't know how she could have missed that. There was no message whatsoever. But uh, what, one of the things that's been going on, of course, in, you know, in back in, when Trump was born uh, and when I was born, nobody thought about pollution. Nobody thought about the environment. Smokestacks were a sign of progress. They were a good thing. You know, stuff was just dumped anywhere, and it all meant jobs. Now, Trump's vision of making America great again in terms of our heavy footprint on the planet doesn't seem at all new. That seems very old again. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know if he cares, but I don't think he does care about that. Is that, you know, again, a nostalgia thing to just make stuff and don't even think about the waste? Well, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's certainly the case that his administration is uh, hostile uh, to environmental regulation if the regulation is going to impede uh, economic growth. Uh, that's kind of standard stuff, I think, from the Republican Party. Uh, 
my own argument, the argument I'm trying to make in the piece is that however much we may lament uh, the Trump administration's reversal of certain Obama administration initiatives on the environment uh, and the U.S. commitment to the Paris Climate Accords would mm. be the best example. Trump's pulled out of that. When all is said and done, you know, 50 years from now, when the full effects of climate change mm. uh, begin to bite mm. uh, in significant ways, Very significant. I really doubt that at that time our fellow citizens are going to say it's all Trump's fault. <laughs> sure. uh, it seems to me that we have we've been warned by scientists uh, about climate change since at least what the early 1980s. Oh yeah, uh, and we we the people. Uh, our, re- our elected representatives have, have basically slow-walked this issue ever since. doesn't matter if it's Republicans or Democrats. Uh, there has been no political party. There's been no political will mm, yeah. uh, to take the sort of steps that would be required to seriously address climate change. Because what would those what would those steps require? Well, it would mean that I could no longer have uh, two cars parked in my driveway as I do, mm-hmm. uh, and be able to drive anywhere I want to, anytime I want to. It would mean that I I would not be able to just flip on the air conditioner in this house I'm sitting in every time that I'm a little bit uh, uncomfortable. It would mean I couldn't just jet away to any city in the world. Uh, whether for pleasure or for business. That is to say, a serious effort to reduce climate change would require me to change the way I live. Uh, and and collectively, we have not been yeah. willing to make those changes. Well, so if climate change causes a serious problem in our country, it's not going to be Trump's fault. No, He contributed, yeah. uh, but the fault ends up being our fault, because uh, we didn't want to make the changes necessary to deal with this problem, and uh, the people we elected to the Congress or to the White House uh, accurately gauged our willingness <laughs> to change our way of life. <laughs> Apparently so. Now, when Bernie Sanders was asked what is the most serious issue, he immediately said climate change, and one of the uh, points he was trying to make, I think, was that you know, America has been creative in the past. We've had good old American ingenuity and that we could create new jobs, actually creating new jobs to clean up the environment and to get us off uh, oil and plastics, for example, that I think hopefully a 2020 candidate for president will talk about the opportunities that are there to to make massive new sources of clean energy and uh I don't know. I, I think there's some possibilities there. I did want to ask one thing that I think Trump has made a serious change on are judicial appointments. He's made a lot of them. Won't this reshape the workings of our justice system for a generation that are, I mean, these, these appointments are really, really right wing, and there's lots of them. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure I buy that entirely. Uh, I understand that, that progressives, uh, generally speaking, uh, are depicting all the Trump appointments as kind of crazy right-wingers. Uh, I haven't looked lately, but if you look at the... And he's appointed some like 500 judges at this point. No, if you count district 
judges and appeals court judges, and of course now we're on the second Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if you look at all those appointees, the first is um, they are people that tend to have uh, quite impressive credentials. I mean, they come from top law schools. They have plenty of experience. Uh, you know, they're not members of a, of a of an American Nazi party or anything like right. that. The second thing is, setting aside the two Supreme Court appointees, there's been a great deal of bipartisan support for a lot of these people. It's not like that they are being hmm, interesting. The, their their appointment is being run through the Senate uh, based on uh, you know 50 Republican votes uh, uh, to, to gain their to, to gain their appointment. That's simply not the case. So I think that it would be useful to uh, calm down a little bit uh, and and let us see uh, exactly uh, what the behavior of these judges uh, uh, looks like. Maybe I'm naive, uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to me that just because somebody has accepted an appointment to the federal bench by the Trump administration that that individual is going to become a lifelong lackey of of Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell. Yeah, true. We've seen cases like that before. I mean, some of Reagan's appointees turned out to be not so bad. And, you know, looking at the... Well, con- I mean, what, it's not a question of good or bad, but it's, it, the, the real point is the, the president picks somebody, the individual gets appointed, uh, they have a lifelong appointment, uh, and it turns out that they have brains and independent judgment, so it doesn't necessarily follow that every every justice appointed by a, a, a Democrat is a down-the-line liberal. That's for sure. That every justice or judge appointed by a Republican is a down-the-line conservative, whatever we mean uh, by liberal right. or conservative in this right. context. Oh, yeah, very much in question what that means. I mean, to me, uh, well, anyway, we could go there, but... and. and Again, looking at the context of 2016, as you write, by 2016, uh, Trump's narcissism, bombast, vulgarity, and talent for self-promotion nicely expressed the underside of the prevailing zeitgeist. His candidacy was simultaneously preposterous, yet strangely fitting, and that Trump's critics may see him as an abomination, but he is also one of us. you got to say more about that observation. That's very interesting. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I suppose it depends on how one evaluates our, our current culture. Uh, but I would say narcissism is a fairly widespread uh, characteristic uh, in American society today. Oh, true. Uh, Trump is a certainly an extreme example, uh, but it's it's pretty much everywhere. So, I mean, I find the guy utterly repulsive. Yes. Uh, but it's it's but he's he's. In, he's a repulsive in a way uh, that displays uh, some of the prominent characteristics in our in present day America in a in a particularly pronounced way. Uh, but it's not as if he comes from another planet. Uh, he's, he is one of us. Yeah, uh, that's true. And if you look at the proliferation of kids with their selfies. That's a little bit of narcissism, and it's... Oh, you think so? Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> just a little. Man, it's weird to me, but hey, we're... I'm it is o- to me, too. I'm an old you're, guy. You're exactly right. That that in a, is a, 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 a small but telling example of the point that I was trying to make. 
Uh, what a culture. My goodness. Uh, I like the old counterculture, I have to say. Uh, it, it, you're, you're saying that uh, the point of this informal midterm report card is not to argue that Donald Trump has somehow failed. It's rather to highlight his essential irrelevance and that if you were basically okay with where America was headed prior to November 2016, just take a deep breath and think of Donald Trump as the political equivalent of a kidney stone. <laughs> that I guess it's painful, but it does pass. And this is an interesting observation, I think, uh, Professor Vesevich. Presidents don't shape the country. The country shapes the presidency. Further, that Trump is not the problem. Think of him instead as a summons to address the real problem. And to me, being part of the anti-war movement in the late 60s, early 70s, the best organizer of the anti-war movement was Richard Nixon. What do you think of the chances that Trump will end up being the kick we needed to, as you say, address the real problem? Might we, as a result of this disturbing gallstone, now start to address our real problems and responsibilities? Any optimism? <laughs> well, no. But let's, <laughs> right. let's, let's take your comparison. Uh, I mean, I was not part of the anti-war movement. Uh, I was serving in the military at the time. Uh, but it seems to me that the anti-war movement really is part of this larger phenomenon called the counterculture. Oh, yes. Uh, pe- people, people in that counterculture, they despised Lyndon Johnson. Yes. And they despised uh, Richard Nixon. Yes. And, and, I, and I think they had plenty of cause to do so. Yes. But they didn't obsess about those two presidents. The, the anti-war movement was was about an opposition to the war, which was something much more than simply opposition to Richard Nixon. And the counterculture was about a, a challenge to the common everyday norms of the 1950s, if speaking very broadly here. Mm-hmm. It wasn't simply about despising the man in the White House. Right. So what I haven't seen yet, maybe I'm not you know, reading the right things and looking in the right places, but what I haven't seen is antipathy toward Trump looking, going beyond simply Trump uh, and being articulated as a vision, an alternative, uh-huh. a different set of propositions. And that's why, as my, my piece was trying to argue, yeah, yeah. this fixation uh, with Trump, in a sense, in, impedes getting on with the more serious business of understanding the predicament in which the nation is in, and, there, and therefore formulating a, a comprehensive program that responds to that predicament. And again, the, to me, the predicament relates to things like inequality, mm-hmm. the normalization of war, and I could go on. And Trump didn't create those things. Trump may be worsening those things, but, but Trump is not the problem. He is a symptom of the problem. And once he passes, we'll still have those problems. They'll still be here. they still be here. Well, thank you so much once again. It's always an honor to speak with you, Professor Andrew Basevich, Professor Emeritus of History and International Relations at Boston University. His article is titled, After Trump, The Donald in the Rearview Mirror, 
Look forward to his new book, Twilight of the American Century. Thank you once again. We certainly have work to do, don't we? Thanks a lot. Yes. Thanks a lot. All right. Things change, but maybe not so much. Some say they're going and some say they've been 